Well, this morning we do want to introduce to you Kelvin Cochran, but before he comes and begins to deliver the word, I just wanted to recognize, I know next service at 11, we're really pushing a large recognition for all of our public safety workers, but I know we've got some here this morning. So if you're involved in public safety, would you just stand to your feet all across the building? Go ahead, start that off for us. Y'all give it up for these men and women who give themselves to serve. God bless you guys for being here today. So good to have you, so good to have you. And excited to be able to introduce to you Mr. Kelvin Cochran as he comes and delivers the word. He's gonna be an example for you of being a missionary in the workplace, even in the midst of great trial. You know, our mission is to make disciples everywhere. So that not only occurs here in our fellowship, but it also occurs as our fellowship goes out. So y'all give him a first class Concord welcome as he comes this morning to share with us. Thank you, Pastor. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Good morning, everybody. To Pastor Levi Skipper, to the Concord Baptist Church family, uh, I bring you greetings this morning on behalf of the Elizabeth Baptist Church in Atlanta, Georgia and our pastor, Dr. Craig L. Oliver, Sr. To my brothers and sisters of the uh, public safety community, firefighters and law enforcement officers, and encourages me that you are here uh, in this service with us this morning. My wife, Carolyn, and I want to express our gratitude to Concord Baptist Church and your awesome pastor for your support and prayers. Over the last six months as we have been going through uh, this trial in our life and then in the life of our family. I met your pastor in, uh, at the Georgia Baptist Convention Executive Committee meeting, I believe it was in November, uh, November, early December. Uh, and there were lots of pastors there from all over the state of Georgia uh, that I was able to go and, and share uh, a piece of my story that was very fresh at the time and to share my testimony. Uh, and that's where we first encountered, but I, I didn't remember him when he called me and didn't remember uh, his face. Uh, but you know how it is that you naturally, you put a face with a voice whenever you hear someone's voice over the phone that you've never heard before. And what an awesome voice that he has, a very distinctive voice uh, that he has. And uh, so I placed the face that... Uh, he, his voice reminded me of uh, Russell Crowe. You know the movie star Russell Crowe? And so I had this picture in my mind that he looked like Russell Crowe, and then when I pulled up in the driveway this morning, I said, he doesn't look like Russell Crowe. <laughs> he looks a whole lot better than Russell Crowe. And then James Forrester was the staff that he placed in charge of attending to all the details pertaining to my visit this morning. Uh, and what a phenomenal guy James Forrester is. And I was looking forward to meeting him this morning. And I understand he, he's assigned to one of the other campuses of the church. And I did not get to meet him but, and didn't talk to him on the telephone. But I had lots of emails. And you know, even through emails, we begin to picture how someone would look. Uh, even though we've never heard their voice, we just communicate them with them through emails. So those of you who know, know James Forrester, does he look like Matt Damon? Because that's who I was. <laughs> I guess by the sounds of your laugh, he doesn't look like Matt Damon. 
but they are two phenomenal guys, and I'm so honored to have uh, built a relationship with them in preparation to this morning. Uh, would you stand with me for uh, a bit of a patriotic protocol and a scripture and prayer? The scripture that I want to share with you before the message this morning comes from 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 14. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 14. And as you look for that scripture, I just can't help but to uh, give recognition to uh, the worship pastor and to the choir and the praise team and the band for the setting the atmosphere of worship this morning. Could you join me in giving them a round of applause? There's a sweet spirit in this place, and they invoked it with their praise and worship songs. This is how that scripture reads. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If you be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part, he is evil spoken of, but on your part, he is glorified. Let us pray. Dear God, our Father, how we praise you and thank you for another day that you have made. And our resolve is that we will rejoice and be glad in it. We thank you, you've blessed us to be back here at church to worship you. And oh God, you have been with us and we have worshiped you in spirit and in truth. We thank you for blessing us to be citizens of the United States of America, the land of the free and the home of the brave. And we pray your blessings on our nation. Now, Father, it is time for me to fulfill the assignment that you have given me to be here this morning to give. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart will be acceptable in your sight and an encouragement to these, my brothers and sisters here at Concord Baptist Church. I'll be careful to give you all the praise in Christ's name. Amen. Please repeat these words after me before you sit. Very familiar words that we learned in the seventh grade. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. Thank you. You may be seated. Good job, everyone. You know, I think they're probably teaching children that in the second grade now, and they probably know it better than we did when we were in the seventh grade. As a topic or theme, brothers and sisters, I want to share the message and testimony under the topic, The Blessings of Sufferings. The blessings of sufferings. And there's a subheading, real life applications in real time. In the United States of America today, there is an ever increasing attack, uh, an assault even, uh, an ongoing threat on the expressions of freedom of religion 
and freedom of speech, even in the United States of America. And my situation is just one of many across the nation. For the last six months, my public life has been on public display in the media. It started when the week of Thanksgiving, I was suspended for 30 days without pay. Upon my return from work on January the 6th, I was terminated from employment. After 34 years of faithful service in the fire and emergency services industry, seven of those years served as fire chief of the city of Atlanta, a city that I love with all my heart, under the leadership of the Honorable Mayor Kasim Reed, whom I still honor and respect as mayor in the Lord our God, as we should as believers honor and respect the authorities that God has placed over us. The consequences that I'm going through started as a result of a Christian-based Bible study that I wrote for men called Who Told You That You Were Naked? Overcoming the Stronghold of Condemnation. And the content expressed in that book and the beliefs that I shared in that book has caused me to be unemployed today. While I reflected back over those experiences over the last few months, I came to realize that God has been preparing me for this trial my entire life, all of my life. And I've also come to realize, brothers and sisters, that the Christian walk of faith is comprised of level plains, mountain climbs, and valleys. Our walk of faith is a series of new beginnings, of setbacks, and restarts, and that sufferings, strangely enough, are an inherent and even necessary component of fulfilling God's plan and purpose for our life and destiny. When I was fire chief in Shreveport, Louisiana in the early 2000s, I was experiencing a multiplicity of challenges, personally and professionally, so I sought God for answers, and he led me to do a word study on the word sufferings in the Scripture. And when I searched the Scripture for the words suffering and what suffering mean, I discovered that when we see words in Scripture like afflictions, trials, tribulations, tests, trouble, persecutions, and chastisement, they all fall under the heading of sufferings. And when I examine the testimonies, the stories of biblical champions who have experienced sufferings, I realize that there are two categories of sufferings. There are self-inflicted sufferings, things that we bring on ourselves that cause afflictions, trials, tribulations, tests, troubles, persecutions, and chastisements. And then there are God-allowed sufferings that have nothing to do with us. We weren't doing anything, but God allowed a situation in our lives that caused afflictions, trials, tribulations, tests, troubles, persecutions, and chastisements. Most of the sufferings that I have experienced in my life fall under the first category, the self-inflicted suffering kind. Anybody else know what a self-inflicted? That means that you were doing something that God told you not to do, or you said something God told you not to say, or he told you to do something like Jonah that you decided that you were not going to do. And that word chastisement, one category type of suffering, God chastised us through afflictions, trials, troubles, or tribulation. He gave us a 
Holy Heavenly Father spanking to bring us back in alignment with his will and purpose for our life and for our destiny. So I've experienced self-inflicted sufferings, things I brought on myself. And as I've reflected back over the years, I realized that it was the self-inflicted sufferings that I was engaged in in my wilderness years of willful transgressions, willful transgressions, that caused me to mature as a spiritual man, as a believer, and caused me to have the testimony, as the old saints in Galilee Baptist Church used to say, things I used to do, I don't do no more. Were it not for those heavenly whippings, I would not be the man I am today. Anybody else in here that could share that testimony? And so I know that suffering, self-inflicted sufferings, uh, actually are God-ordered in the life of a believer. But what I'm going through right now is not a self-inflicted suffering. What's happening to me is not because God is chastising me. He's allowing this to happen in my life. There are those of you in this room right now, you can relate to, even little children can relate to self-inflicted sufferings. And I believe there are those of us in the room right now that can relate to God-allowed suffering. God wants you to understand that what you may be going through has nothing to do with something that you have done, but everything to do to what He is doing for His glory. That's important for us to recognize. And so that's what I'm experiencing, a God-allowed suffering. One of the things that I learned was that there are several people that we can rely on in Scripture to see the blessings of suffering. Remember Job in the Bible? Job was an honorable man. He's one of two other men besides Jesus Christ in Scripture that was called perfect. And then God allowed unimaginable sufferings to come in his life, but afterwards he was blessed twice as much as he had, and he already had more than most of us wish we had the first time around before the suffering. Esther was a beautiful young girl in uh, Israelite in bondage under a king that had a pagan wife. He wanted the most beautiful, nicest, sweetest, finest girl in the kingdom. Sent out scouts and they found Esther, and she was under a, a bad marriage in a pagan nation in bondage, suffering. But through her sweetness, through her kindness, through her stealing the king's heart, she ultimately saved the Jewish people from, from genocide. Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were in bondage in Babylon. And they were faithful government employees, just like I was, just like many of you who are faithful government employees, firefighters, law enforcement officers, school teachers, and the like faithful government employees, but they were faithful government employees, but the king, who they were faithful to, came up with a standard that everybody's got to bow to this idol God. And they made a decision that, O oh, king, we honor you as the authority that God has placed us under. We are faithful employees in Babylon, but that is one standard that we will not meet. He said, if you don't, I'm going to throw you in this fiery furnace. They said, even if you do, our God is able to deliver us. And even if he don't, we still will not bow down. God is expecting some believers today in today's society to have that kind of resolve in our beliefs and trust in him that we would even face the death penalty. But most of us don't have to face something that dastardly. 
We're talking about letters of reprimand and suspensions and termination. Those three brothers said, you, you can kill me and I still won't bow down to this government-ordered standard. And they were thrown in the fiery furnace, but some company showed up in the furnace with them. And the king said, it looks like the Son of God. Afterwards, when he delivered them, that same king said, no one can worship any other god but the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they were promoted to governors. Then their friend Daniel, just a few years later, under another king who liked Daniel, loved Daniel, he was his favorite of three presidents, was tricked into signing a decree that no one can pray to the king, but, but any, no one can pray to anyone but the king for 30 days. That 30 days resonates with me because I was suspended for 30 days. He said, no one can pray for 30 days but to you, King Darius. And then afterwards, he realized they set Daniel up because Daniel had a prayer life that he said, as much as I respect and honor you, King Darius, and as faithful as I am to our government in Babylon, even though I'm a captive in Babylon, I'm going to continue my prayer life. His friends caught him praying, turned him in. His death penalty was the lion's den. You know what I believe happened? I believe those guards that took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you know, it was so hot that they caught on fire and they burned alive. I believe they had some co-workers that after that, they went to the king and said, we can't do this fire furnace anymore. Look at what happened to Bubba and Joe and Billy. We, we, we got to change this to something else to where the guards won't get burned up. And they decided to go to the lion's den for the death penalty. So Daniel faced the lion's den. And the king was brokenhearted because he didn't know that Daniel would be the first victim. And he asked the question, is the God of Daniel able to deliver him from the lions? He ran over the next morning and found out that his God was able to deliver him from the lions. And he brought him out, and everybody that plotted against him, he threw them and all their households in. And they became food for the lions. And Daniel was promoted, and God received kingdom glory because that king says no one can worship any other God but the God of Daniel. So here are the lessons to learn before I share you, with you my testimony, because I'm not the only one in this room today who is experiencing sufferings. Here are the lessons that should get us excited, so that like in 1 Peter 4, 12, and 14, we can rejoice and be exceedingly glad with great joy while we're going through sufferings. Listen, God always prepares His children for suffering. He always does. Lesson number one. Lesson number two is there are worldly consequences for standing on biblical values and principles. There are. But lesson number three is there are also kingdom consequences for standing on biblical values and principles, and the kingdom consequences are always greater than the worldly consequences. They always are. Most of us back off of standing because we fear that the worldly consequences will devastate us and we'll never recover. But we've got to rejoice in the promises of God that the kingdom consequences will always be greater than the worldly consequences no matter what they are, and God will be glorified, which is the next lesson learned. God always allows suffering in our lives for His glory. And then the last lesson is that we will be beneficiaries. Wherever your station in life, your status in life, 
before you went through the sufferings, it's going to be greater after you go through the sufferings. And I believe that God used those Bible champions in the Scripture, publicly humiliated Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but publicly vindicated them, publicly humiliated Daniel, but publicly vindicated Daniel, so that we today can read those stories and get excited when we are going through sufferings. So here's my testimony. It's in three parts. Childhood preparation for suffering, career or vocational preparation for suffering, and family preparation for suffering. I was born in 1960 in Shreveport, Louisiana, at Confederate Memorial Hospital where the poor families went who couldn't afford health care. I had three big brothers prior to me. When my mom and dad took me home from the hospital, we were living in a government project called Alameda Terrace. Three years after my birth, two other girls were added to our family, six children in all. Then my dad left my mother for another woman. The way I describe our situation, we were poor when dad was with us, P-O-O-R. When dad left, things got worse, much worse, and we became PO, P-O. We didn't have enough income to qualify for the whole word anymore. So we had to move from the projects to a shotgun house, a raggedy shotgun house in an alley called Rear Snow Street. And I began to realize at five that poverty was a terrible thing. We were on welfare, food stamps. At school, we were on the free lunch program. I received hand-me-down clothes from my big brothers. There were times when the lights would be turned off because mom didn't have enough money to pay the light bill. The phone would be turned off because the telephone was turned off. Uh, there were times when there was no gas to cook with, and we had to cook our food on a little one-aisle hot plate, electric plate. There were times when my mother would say, keep every pot and jug in the house full of water. A few days later, we'd come from home from school or come from outside playing, turn on the faucets, no water, because she realized she'd received the cutoff notice from the water company, and we would not have any water. It was just a matter of days. So we used the pots and jugs to bathe, cook, and flush the toilet with. Poverty was a terrible thing, and I knew it. At the end of the month, we would be out of groceries, and all we would end up having enough to eat most of the time were mayonnaise sandwiches. And if we wanted something sweet to drink, since all the sodas and Kool-Aid was gone, we would take a couple of teaspoons of sugar, put it in a cold glass of water, and we would have sugar water with our mayonnaise sandwiches. I remember one Sunday after church, lying in the front room of that shotgun house, and we heard the noise of sirens responding down Snow Street, the main street, which was not unusual because fire trucks responded in our neighborhood a lot. There were lots of emergencies back in those days. But that day was different, so we sprang to our feet, opened the front door, and right in front of our house was a big red Shreveport Fire Department fire truck. Miss Maddie, who lived across the alley from us, her house was on fire. And when I watched those firefighters that day, at five years old, that's the day I was smitten. I looked at my mom, brothers, and sisters, and I said, I want to be a fireman when I grow up. It's another thing that resonated with me as a kid, that about 95% of the families in our neighborhood only had a mom with children in the house. Very few of my friends had dads at home with them. But there was a few guys at my church that I paid attention to. And they would ride to church in their nice cars, they would get out and they were nicely dressed. Their wives would be nicely dressed and beautiful. Their children who were about my age would dress a whole lot better than me and my brothers and sisters. 
And I used to watch them because I developed a vision of wanting to be a husband and a father like those guys and having the cap capacity to be able to take care of my wife and children like it appeared that they were able to do. Guys, you don't realize these children at our church, when we come to church Sunday after Sunday, little boys are watching us to see what kind of men they want to be. They're kind of picking and choosing things about us that they want to be like when they grow up. We can't take that for granted. So the grown-ups used to ask us a lot, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I'd say, I want to be a fireman, I don't want to be poor, and I want to have a family. I want to be a husband and a father. And this is what they said, your dreams will come true if you believe in and have faith in God, if you go to school and get a good education, and if you treat other children like you want to be treated and respect grown people. And I'm thinking, believe in God, go to school, work hard to get a good education, respect grown people and treat other children like I want to be treated, and my dreams are going to come true? They said yes. So they were right. 1981, I became a firefighter. My dream came true. But it didn't stop there. When I kept applying those principles, four years later, I became a captain. Five years after that, I became an assistant chief of the training academy. As I continued to apply those principles, eight years after that, with 18 years on the department, I became the fire chief in the whole city of Shreveport, the same city that my dream was born. I continued to apply those principles, and eight and a half years later, I was called to Atlanta by Mayor Shirley Franklin to serve as her fire chief. Was there for 20 months and was called from the White House. President Obama wanted me to serve in the Department of Homeland Security as the United States Fire Administration Administrator, the highest fire position in the United States of America from a kid who came from a single mom, six children on welfare food stamps, the free lunch program, hand-me-down clothes, eating mayonnaise sandwiches and drinking sugar water in the United States of America, but it's only in the United States of America. And I found out in my case that having a praying Christian mama at home had a lot greater value than my drunk daddy who was a whoremonger at home. And her prayers got us through. I, I, I say that uh, an at-risk family is not a family who doesn't have a dad at home who's on welfare, food stamp, and free lunch program. That's not an at-risk family. An at-risk family is a family who doesn't have a praying mama or a daddy at home who is feeding their children's dreams and vision for the future. My mom was a praying mother, and she fed her children's dreams and vision for the future. So even though the demographics maybe have looked like we were an at-risk family, a family with a vision for their future with a praying mama or daddy or mom and daddy is not an at-risk family. And so God blessed my career. He blessed my upbringing, but He also blessed my family to prepare me for what we're going through. After serving at the U.S. Fire Administration for just 10 months, loving that job, Mayor Kasim Reed brought me back, recruited me to come back to the city of Atlanta when he was elected to serve as his fire chief, uh, and he terminated me on January the 6th of this year for writing, Who Told You That You Were Naked? Then the family preparation. When I became a firefighter in 1981, I was a very popular guy which was new for me because I was skinny as all get out growing up. 
I didn't dress nicely because I had to wear my big brother's hand-me-down clothes. And to get a pretty girl, you had to have an afro, and I couldn't grow one. <laughs> and so having that firefighter's uniform on and the muscles I gained when I was going through the recruit academy, working out in PT, man, I was popular. I was as popular, listen, guys, I was as popular as a starting quarterback on the high school football team. And I used to ride through the neighborhoods on the back of that truck and wave at the girls. They would follow me in their cars back to the fire station, give me their telephone numbers. And so for four months, I dated like a wild man. And one morning, God woke me up and said, son, this is not the life that I've called you to. I didn't bring you to all this to get you here for you to be a bachelor and to be dating like crazy, like a wild man. And you need to find yourself a wife. So my plan, brothers and sisters, was Rather than try to find somebody I've never met, I'm just going to think back on the girls that I've admired the most or liked the most in my life, and whichever one started my heart to sing, and that was the one that I would feel that God wants me to marry. So I thought about college and thought about high school, went all the way back and thought about my fourth grade girlfriend, Carolyn Marshall, and my heart started to sing. And so I said, this is it. I've got to find Carolyn Marshall. And we didn't have uh, Match.com and ChristianMingle.com and Facebook. So I picked up the telephone book, the best technology we had at the time. I went to the Marshall section, and my plan was to call every Marshall in that book. And here, here's my spiel. My name is Kelvin Cochran. I'm trying to find the girlfriend I used to go with in the fourth grade. Her name is Carolyn Marshall. Do you know her? So I did that on the whole list. Nobody admitted that they knew her. My plan B was I'm going to go to every neighborhood where I knew she lived. By chance, I, but I will see her walking down the street, sitting on the front porch. Since we grew up in the same neighborhood, she could be drinking a cold glass of sugar water, and I can catch her on the front porch. Or I would see someone who knew her that I knew and could find out where she was that way. That came up short. So I went back to my apartment miserable, and I said, God, what am I going to do? He said, go back to the phone book. And I said, Lord, I've already done the phone book thing. Go back to the phone book. So I honored God, followed his instruction, and I looked at those names and I skipped one. So I said, I might as well call this one. It was an initial C.F. Marshall. And so I called that number and I started with my spiel. I was a little discouraged this time. I said, my name is Kelvin Cochran. I'm trying to find the girl I used to go with in the fourth grade. Her name is Carolyn Marshall. Do you know her? And the voice said, this is she. Man, I got so excited. I said, Carolyn, this is Kelvin Cochran. Do you remember me? She says, yeah, I remember you. I said, listen, Carolyn, I'm a firefighter now. I've got a good job with good benefits. And I've been dating like crazy for the last four months. God woke me up and said, you need to find yourself a wife, and you are the chosen one. <laughs> and she said, you are crazy. I said, no, I'm not crazy. And I began to share with her I said, well, listen, can I come over and talk to you about it? She says, no, I already have a boyfriend, and he's coming over here. He's on the way over here. And I poured my heart out to her about my vision for family and my future and my career. I guess I was convinced enough to where her response was, he'll be at work tomorrow night. <laughs> and so I said, well, can I come over tomorrow night? And she let me come over. When I got there, she invited me in. She was still living at her mom, with her mom. She sat me down at the kitchen table, went to make me a cup of hot chocolate. I Hey, given to hospitality, that's a good sign. When she came back, I knelt down on my knee without a ring, 
And I proposed to her. She sprang to her feet. She went and got her mother. She said, Mom, you're not going to believe this. I haven't seen this guy in years. He called me on the phone last night. I invited him over tonight, and now he has asked me to marry him. Of course, I had to convince her mother that I was not crazy. But after that conversation, uh, she took me seriously. Six months later, we were married. This June, we will celebrate 33 years of marriage. That's C.F. Marshall sitting right over there on the front row. And so there are childhood sufferings, there are career and vocational sufferings, and there are family sufferings because when you skip dating and courtship and go right to engagement and marriage, you're going to experience some sufferings. But it was those sufferings that brought three awesome children in our life, those joyful children, and strengthened our marriage to be able to deal with what we are going through now. My wife and children have been ministering to me any uh, much stronger than I could have ever done and strengthening me while we go through this. And so, what's the resolve for believers? Because all, all of us are being prepared or have been prepared by God to go through suffering. And what caused this? Well, you heard Pastor Levi. When I wrote that book, I had no idea that all this would happen. And I asked God, God, is this you wanting me to write this book? And should I write it now? I was not fearful of some controversy. I just believed that if what was in my heart about men overcoming condemnation was actually going to have the impact on men's lives that I believe it was going to have, that I was going to have another job besides being the fire chief, and that's out speaking at churches and at men's conferences and stuff like that. So I said, God, should I do it now? And God says, yes, I want you to do it now. I didn't know that this was going to come out of it, but he knew that this was going to come out of it. And so when I researched, when I asked the guys in a Bible study, you know, are men still suffering today from the consequences of what Adam did in the garden? Their answer was an overwhelming, yes, men are still suffering from that. And I said, uh, share your story. Why do you feel that way? And as each one of them shared and finished, the words, who told you you were naked, kept popping up into my head. And so as I usually do when I'm curious about something, I search the Scripture. And I searched the Scripture and found out that God meant more than who told you that you don't have on any clothes. Naked, in that context, meant condemnation and deprivation. Who told you that you were condemned and deprived? Who told you that you are sentenced to die? And who told you that what I have not already provided you is all that you ever need? Who told you that you were naked? That's what God was saying to Adam. And Adam was so overwhelmed with his nakedness, he thought the solution would be fig leaves and hiding behind a tree. It didn't solve the problem. He still felt condemned and deprived. But God came along with a solution. So God said, I want you to find out what clothed means and look at what I did in the garden. I found out clothed means salvation, redemption, and restoration. And the solution God had in the garden was he took an innocent lamb, shed its blood, and clothed them with coats of skin. Fast forward to Calvary. That's the precursor where the Lamb of God, the innocent Lamb of God, would take away the sins of the world. And Galatians 3.27 says, those who have been baptized in Christ have been clothed with Christ. So the question today, brothers, is who told you that you were naked? Why are we still walking around with fig leaves on? 
and not being the husbands and the fathers and the papas and the uncles and the supervisors and leaders that God has called us to be. Who told you that you were naked? And that's what that book is about. But you can't talk about condemnation and deprivation unless you talk about sex because men have challenges in that area. And when you talk about it according to Scripture, God's purpose for it was for procreation. Yeah, yeah it's a good thing, but that, he didn't create it just because it was good. He said, multiply. And the way we multiply is a man and a woman have procreative power, and it can only happen between a man and a woman, and it can only happen God's way in holy matrimony. And that's the controversy that caused all this trial. And so what do we do when we find ourselves experiencing suffering? We fall on all that we have that has been poured into us from the time we were little kids going through vacation Bible school, from the time we were little kids and saying our Easter speeches and singing songs like he's got the whole world in his hands and yes, Jesus loved me and all those other songs we used to sing that we were reared upon. We think about prayers that our grandparents and parents pray. We think about songs like we've heard in worship service today, and we rejoice and we, we, we are exceedingly glad with great joy because we know from Scripture and from our own walk with God that He's always come through every single time and that the world consequences can never be greater than the kingdom consequences. I believe Daniel was reciting Psalm 27 when he was in the lion's den. You know that pictorial Bible? that shows Daniel laying on a line with his head like it's a pillar. Uh, I believe that happened after he wore himself out dancing and leaping and shouting and praising God that the lions were not hungry enough to eat him up. And then after he was just flat exhausted, then he laid his head on a line and took a nap. But I believe in that process because they had the Psalms, they had the Proverbs, they had the first four books of the Bible, and Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were trained. They were teenagers when they went to Babylon. Teenagers! God prepared them for what they were going through. And because of that, I have loved Psalm 27 for years. And I want to conclude by encouraging you with the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked, even my enemies and my foes, came upon me to eat up my flesh, they stumbled and fell. Though an host should encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war should rise against me, in this will I be confident. One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For in the time of trouble, he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret of his tabernacle shall he hide me. And now shall my head be lifted up above my enemies round about me. He shall set me up upon a rock. Therefore, I will offer in his tabernacle sacrifices of joy. I will sing, yea, I will sing praises unto the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice. Have mercy also upon me and answer me. When thou saidest, seek ye my face, 
My heart said unto thee, Thy face, Lord, will I seek. Hide not thy face far from me. Put not thy servant away in anger. Thou hast been my help. Leave me not, neither forsake me, O God of my salvation. When my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord shall take me up. Teach me thy way, O Lord. As I go through this trial, teach me thy way, O Lord, and lead me in a plain path because of my enemies. Deliver me not over until the will of my enemies, for false witnesses have risen up against me, and such as breathe out cruelty. I would have fainted, lest I had believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I paraphrase that part. I say, I would have passed out and given up all hope, lest I had seen the manifestations of the exceeding great and precious promises of God manifested in my situation and in my life before I have died. That psalm ends with a charge from David to all who go through suffering. Wait on the Lord. No matter what you're going through, afflictions, trials, tribulations, persecutions, or chastisement, wait on the Lord and be of good courage, and he shall strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. The Lord, when we take a stand for him, brothers and sisters, he's not going to push us out there and say, protect my reputation, and then when you do that, he turns his back and ignores you like, I don't know who they are. When you stand for him, he's going to stand with you. We should drop words from our vocabulary like, my back is up against the wall. I'm at the end of my rope, and I'm ready to throw in the towel. Those words are not decrees from children of God. There's a psalm that was sang in an anthem back in my old church. It says, lift up your heads, O ye gates. Even lift them up, ye everlasting doors. And the King of glory shall come in. What is that psalm saying? Lift up your heads. God cannot move powerfully in a pity party. So he can't, he, he, he said, lift up your heads, O ye gates. Get out of your pity party. Even lift them up, ye everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. Then he poses the question, who is the king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. And he's never lost a fight. Who is the king of glory? He is the king of glory. So this is our resolve. Remember that old hymn? I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Let us pray. Father, our God in heaven, we praise you and thank you that you are the God of the angel armies. You go before us. You stand behind us. You will not put us out there to stand for you and to protect your reputation and then turn your back on us. You are always with us, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love the Lord. So help us to be more strengthened by the kingdom consequences of standing for you. 
than fearful of the worldly consequences. Be glorified in our lives in Jesus' name. With your heads bowed and eyes closed, just as we prepare in our hearts for this time of invitation, you've heard the good news. Jesus Christ, the King of glory, went to the cross and there paid the penalty of your sin. And if you will turn from your sin and place your trust in Jesus alone, you can be forgiven. And you make that decision this morning that I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. That may very well be you. You've come to church today, but you do not have a personal relationship with the Lord. Well, sin separates you, but Jesus died for your sin. The Bible says, whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And you can experience that great salvation where you are clothed in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't earn that by our religious activity. That is a gift of grace given to you and I who trust in the Lord. So if you need him this morning, just call out to him right now where you are. With your heads bowed and eyes closed, just say, Lord, I am a sinner and I need forgiveness today. So I'm turning from my sin and placing my trust in you. Thank you for Jesus who died for me, was buried and resurrected. And now give me courage to follow hard after him, starting even today. Listen, if that's the prayer of your heart this morning, or you've given your life to the Lord Jesus recently, then in a moment we're going to stand to our feet and begin to sing. And as we sing, I'm going to invite you to come. You come forward. Leave the place where you've been seated this morning. And with boldness, stand for Jesus. And we'll give you an opportunity the days ahead to be baptized. Or the Lord may be calling you to join this church body. You want to partner with God's mission to make disciples everywhere. If that's the case this morning, then I'd encourage you to come as well. But most of all, you've heard a testimony of somebody I knew would encourage your heart. But a testimony, hopefully, that would challenge you to stand strong for Jesus where he has planted you. All of us are missionaries who know Jesus. And he sovereignly selects the places where we would serve. And then he gives us an opportunity to declare his glory. And I pray that you're doing that and that you go out strengthened this morning. Father, the invitation is always is yours. We pray that you'd work in it. In Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Let's stand to our feet while we sing this morning.